0: Hey, it's Marisa from the Tower Hill production team. Thank you so much for tuning in to our Tower Hill podcast. Whenever or wherever you're listening, we hope this helps you continue to grow in your faith journey. Good morning, Tower Hill Church Online. I'm Pastor Jason. It's great to be with you today as we worship God together. We're in the middle of this sermon series called Love in the Age of Outrage. And it's been great, the response that I've been getting from all of you. It seems like this topic Is hitting a nerve. Well, as I always say, the whole reason why I preach the things that I do is a lot of times it's because I feel God speaking to me about something and I just decide to share it because I figure if I'm feeling it, perhaps you might be too. I've had a lot of you say, like, oh man, this is hitting a nerve. This is hitting me right where I'm at. Yes, it seems like everybody's outraged, everybody's angry. And sometimes Christians are at the center of fueling the fire of that anger. And so, what do we do? Is that really what God wants? Course not. But then, what's the way forward? How do we actually deal with all of this? So, I hope that this has been helpful for you to think about these things. I just experienced outrage this week. I'm like, you know, I'm preaching on this stuff, and I was experiencing outrage. And it has to do with all the construction going on. It seemed I had this moment this week where I was uh, driving a bunch of kids from practice, and, you know, I was in the practice carpool, and everywhere I turned to see no matter what town I came to there was some kind of detour or traffic due to construction you know, I'm like I'm rolling up on the place like no you can't go here and I just felt myself just getting filled with rage and then so is everybody else right so uh, somebody stops their car to let kids out like in the middle of the street and and I'm getting frustrated and so I like gotta drive around and then the person coming the other way stares me down with this like nasty look I'm like oh my gosh it's not working. <laughs> Maybe that's just driving in New Jersey. Maybe driving in New Jersey is like the mulligan. I don't know. But the point is, outrage is still, and I think will be for a while, a problem. Last couple of weeks, we've summed it up this way. The first week we we said, it's kind of like We need to ask ourselves this question when we're faced in these moments or in these situations, whether it's in a a social media feed or it's a relationship or it's a circumstance, like avoiding the construction. And the question is, am I falling into outrage or am I looking to engage with Christ's love? Like, can I take a step back and say, okay, like, am I just falling into outrage here? If I am, how do I reframe that? How do I repackage that in my head? So that I started thinking about what it would look like to bring the love of Christ to this situation. Admittedly, I failed, fell on my face on that one <laughs> with the road construction. But I think that's the right question. And last week, we kind of landed on this place where the truth is you can't share Christ without a, with a culture that you don't love. You have to have love for the culture around you, for the people, for the relationships. If you don't bring love first, if you don't lead with love, there's no way you're going to speak truth into that. There's no way that you're going to have an impact on culture. You're just going to find yourself constantly fighting against it. We said last week, we said our goal should be that Christians are an integral and celebrated part of the community. Like, even somebody who doesn't go to church should be really thankful that Tower Hill exists because of all the good that we do. And they'll know we are Christians by our love. And that would be our hope, is that everybody would know us by our love. And maybe more pointedly, by the love of Christ through us. As you know, we've been having a conversation with Scripture and with Ed Stetzer's book, Christians in the Age of Outrage, how to bring our best when the world is at its worst. I hope you pick up a copy of this book. It'd be great to support Ed and his work, and and I think it's got a lot of wonderful insights in it. And today, we're sort of shifting a little bit, and we're talking about, well, how do we, what now do we do with this information that we've had the last couple of weeks? And I think it has to do with worldview. It has to do with how do we see the world around us, and what's the right sort of corrective lens to use? Stetzer, in his book, says this. He says, our worldview helps us understand and interact with the moral, social, and spiritual elements of life. It is the machine running in the background of our thinking that influences us at all times. When we live out a gospel-driven worldview, the gospel is not just something we grasp at conversion. It is something that influences how we see and respond to the world in all areas of our lives. You know, we all have worldviews. And for most of us, our worldviews continue to shift and change a little bit as we Age as we mature, as we get sort of different circumstances that paint the picture of the world around us. But I think there's, and that happens all the time no matter who you are, but I think there's kind of a fundamental worldview shift that happens for the person who's given their life to Jesus Christ because when you are born again in the spirit, you've heard that phrase before, right? Born again. And the only reason I use that phrase is because Jesus uses it. He talks about being born again. to Nicodemus when Nicodemus the Pharisee asked him. And and I think it's a good way of framing the Christian life because it's like we once were lost and now we're found. We were this old person and God through his grace saved us from sin and forgave us, filling that God-shaped hole in our lives and recreated us, breathed new life into us. So we're like a new person. And I think In order to do this well, in order to love well in the age of outrage, I think it's to do with embracing a transformed worldview. Here's what I mean. What's the point of a worldview? It's it's how we see things. It felt like when I gave my life to Christ at 19 years old, I had a particular worldview before then. And when I discovered who Jesus was and Jesus made me new, it was as if... I was given corrective lenses through which to see the world that I didn't know was foggy. It's like I could see things as they really are in a way that I I couldn't even comprehend before. I could see God's truth in everything. I could see his plan and his purpose. I could see what he was doing in the world and in me and in my relationships. My whole worldview shifted. It changed. And then it became about, okay, like the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like my worldview shifted from my kingdom come, my will be done so that I'm happy. To what does it take for the Lord, for the love of Jesus Christ to rule in my life? It changes your worldview, it changes how you see things. And everything comes from a perspective of how do I be a part of God's restoration plan for the world, for the people around me, for the planet, for whatever that looks like. We talked a bit about this last week that there are sometimes two approaches that Christians have. We said the bear or the boat. where the bear is sort of like we're always attacking the culture around us, or the boat is sort of like we're the tide, and we just withdraw. We retreat away from the bay, and we just leave all the boats stranded because we think, well, we just shouldn't engage with culture. we got to protect ourselves. And as we said last week, a fully formed, gospel-centered view of culture is neither attack nor retreat, but gospel engagement. And the question is, okay, well, what does gospel engagement look like? Let me give you an example. I've been waiting to use this example. Many of you know, if you've been with us for a while, that I am a Raiders fan, professional football, now the Las Vegas Raiders fan, because they were the team I grew up with when I was in Los Angeles. And in 2014, they drafted their quarterback, Derek Carr, who is the uh, quarterback of the of the Raiders, and he's been there, he's going his eighth season, and His his career has been you know up and down and but one thing he's done is he's really put himself out there with his faith. He is the one leading the prayer at the end of the game with the opposing team. He is the one who is lifting up the name of God, giving glory to God when things go well, and when things go bad, he talks about his trust. And one thing he has led with is his faith. Now, people have goofed on him for it, right? People have you know, sort of like, yeah, Derek Carr's a good quarterback, but, you know, maybe he should ease up on all the Jesus talk and play better or something. You know, like, people would, sports commentators and journalists and things like that would always have a comment about his faith. But over the last eight years on the team, he's, he's had a noticeable difference on his team. Now, all of a sudden, it seems like a lot of people on his team are talking about faith in God, are talking about and, and putting it all out there about how much they love Jesus and how we're giving all the glory to God and we're here for one another. And sort of like a lot of God talk for this notoriously like bad boy football team. It's like a, a Christian witness. So much so, I mean, this is amazing. So in the game last week, uh, Derek Carr, he's been playing very well the first two games of this season. And he, uh, he went down with an injury. He, he threw a, a pass and went down. And as I was watching this on TV, I was amazed that there were all these players and coaches came over to him. I mean, it was a real testament to how much they loved him, but that wasn't the best part. Here's a quote from the USA Today reporter who was talking about this moment. said, Derek looked up and saw a crowd of more than a dozen Raiders, players, coaches, trainers, gathered their faces, uh, or, or they were gathered, their faces showing concern." They stood praying for me, Carr said during his post-game news conference. That was a beautiful moment. In fact, I saw this in real time when I was watching the game. They all laid hands on each other, very briefly. It was probably like 15, 20 seconds. Put their hands on each other. They all obviously were saying a prayer. And uh, he ended up getting back up and finishing the game. What a testimony to how his faith has somehow had this influence on the whole team. And it's taken time. And it's taken intentionality. It's taken enduring getting picked on probably a bit. And you think about it though, I mean why did this article get written now? Well it was because of his performance. Like he's been playing well so therefore you get a spotlight shined on you. And I think what I'd like to say about this for all of us is How we perform in culture is mission critical. I think God wants us to perform well, whatever our performance might look like, whether it's in our job, whether it's in our relationships in the community, whatever that looks like, whatever team, quote unquote, we have been placed on, we need to perform well. And then when we do, like Derek Carr, his performance placed a spotlight on his character and the effects of his character on the rest of the team. I think it's the same thing with us. You see, Christians are an essential part of God's worldwide cultural restoration project. We are intended to bring Jesus to the culture. And we can do it in a way where we are loving, where we are caring, where we're building up our teammates, so to speak. And after a while, if we perform well, people will look at us and be like, wow, what's different about them? Wow, they have something special. Wow, I knew they were good, good people. I knew they did well in the community. But wow, I didn't didn't know they were people of such faith. I didn't know that they had this character about them. See, those things go hand in hand. I think in an odd way, this example of Derek Carr and the Las Vegas Raiders says something about what it looks like to have gospel engagement in the culture around us. It's, how do I bring the good news of Jesus Christ to bear in what I do with my life, my job, my relationships? How do I do that? And, and when the world looks at us, when culture looks at us, they should see something that is so amazing that they kind of marvel at it and want a part of it. I think it was Tim Keller who used this illustration once that I really enjoy. He said, do you ever notice when you go to maybe you're picking out an engagement ring or maybe some diamond earrings or something, and you notice that when the jeweler puts the diamond against the black felt, boy, that that jewel really pops in a brilliant way. And they know it, right? So that's how they want to get you to buy it. They show the brilliance of it against the dark material. Well, what if, what if this was like the Christian faith and the culture around us? the beauty of the Christian faith should stand in greater brilliance against the backdrop of a sin-broken world. And that should be our worldview, that we as Christians, we should be shining brilliantly for the world to see that the beauty of the Christian life may be so incredibly attractive and stand in many ways as the counter-culture, as the better way, of living this life together, the redeemed version of the culture that God wants. So how do we do it? How do we start to think in this way so that our mindset, our worldview, is always thinking about how do we show the brilliance of God? How do we radiate the light of Jesus Christ? And Maybe that's also good with the jewel, right? It it doesn't create light, it radiates it. It shows the beauty of the light. Through its structure. Well, who are we as the body of Christ, but showing the beauty of God's light through our structure? Romans twelve, two puts it this way and says, This is how you do it. This is how you impact culture with the love of Christ. Paul says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not conform. So don't be like the sin-broken world. Enter that world with love. Try to lift everybody up. Try to be a part of supporting it, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He continues just a few verses later, Yeah, almost anticipating, okay, well, how do I do that? How do I not conform to the pattern of this? What does it look like? To have a renewing of my mind. He continues. And I want you to notice here. He talks about love, but he talks about love in action. Pay attention to all the verbs, right? It's the doing of the love. You'll see what I mean. Verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Love must be sincere. You must genuinely love the culture. You must genuinely love the team on which you've been placed. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Practice hospitality. Right? Do it over and over again. Get better at it. Make it a practice. It's like doctors, they have a practice, right? They they don't just study and pass the test, they have a practice, practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. How about that message for Twitter? (laughs) Christians on Twitter, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. In other words, what? Love people, but this is what love looks like. It looks like doing these things, not just saying, not just talking about them, but doing them. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Maybe that should just go up on your computer, (laughs) all right? Or maybe it should go on mine, more specifically. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And that's a great reminder, right? Peace, it takes two. It's not just you, but as far as it depends on you, live in peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, he will heat burning coals on his head. Now, listen, I mean, that's an idiom. It's not as violent as that sounds. It's just sort of saying, like, their punishment will be their rejection of, of your love. Like, you don't, you don't worry about that. Just, just worry about, and hopefully that rejection will, will lead to repentance. But don't worry about that. You worry about loving well even your enemies. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, I think, you know, whether it's driving because you're mad at construction or you're on social media or or maybe it's a, a relationship with your spouse or, or your kids or a really important relationship in your life, I think our job as Christians is to shine brightly, to show the world the beautiful alternative of Christ's love, the transformed alternative, the redeemed culture that we're all created to live in. And there are all sorts of little ways that, that we can do this. I think some people think, well, I mean, what is this? You said all that, but what does this actually look like? And again, here's just a really practical example. And I don't even know if this was done by Christians. It might not have been. But it feels like a Christian thing to do. Uh, back in 2014, there was a, an article, came out of USA Today, about uh, this Starbucks in Florida. I, see, see what I'm doing? I'm circling the loop on Starbucks after we talked about the Red Cups. Well, here's a positive story. 378 people paid it forward at a local Starbucks in Florida. In other words, one person bought for the next person behind them in line, and it went on for 378 people. I know that sounds, that might even sound kind of dumb, but I think these are ways that we show the goodness of God just in our culture in a way that doesn't mean you're preaching a sermon at people. It's How do we work for the peace and prosperity of the city to which we've been planted? We in exile, right? How do we do that? I think it's things like this. How do we pay it forward in our culture? How do we have a positive influence? How do we bring love to the outrage around us? It's about our performance, right? How we perform in culture is mission critical. A couple of other things I think that we get from the scriptures that we've talked about and Um, As we look forward to, what does this look like to have this worldview that says our job is to shine brilliantly in this culture, uh, the light of Jesus Christ? Well, the first thing, and I just want to highlight this again, love must be sincere. You can't fake love, right? You could fake like. You can't fake love. Love, um, Love has to be sincere. It has to be real. You have to genuinely love people in order to bring the love of Christ to them and and i'll say this if you feel like you don't genuinely love somebody then i think that's something i think it's a red flag i think it's something you may want to pray about it also may mean that you're not the person to speak to that person in their life it's going to be somebody else but i think love is really really important the second paul talks about renewing your mind not have a renewed mind as if it's finished sometime in the past it goes beyond saying yes to Jesus once. It's this constant submission to God saying, Jesus, my mind isn't just going to naturally love the way that I'm supposed to love. My mind's not going to, it's, it's, it's going to conform to the pattern of this world unless I'm intentional about inviting you in over and over again. Renew my mind. Give me the right worldview. Put those corrective lenses on me every single day so I can see things like you see things and not as I see things. Renewing your mind is really the journey of discipleship. Stetzer, in his book, talks about it this way. He says, Eugene Peterson, who's a famous uh, Presbyterian pastor, describes the Christian life as a long obedience in the same direction. In fact, I think Pastor Teresa's study is going to be talking a bit about this. He goes on, Few lines so neatly summarize the relevant factors that go into discipleship a long obedience in the same direction. It has to do with time. It has to do with a constant renewing of the mind, which only happens, it's only made power by God himself. Discipleship is empowered by and aimed at God. And when you do that, when your mind is renewed, then you're able to have a sincere love. Then you're able to bring Jesus to the culture around you. And the, I mean, some practical ways to renew your mind, right? Get, get involved in a small group. Get involved in a Bible study. Read the scriptures on your own. Wrestle with them. Serve. Go out and, and help people that need it. These are ways that you put love into action. Go back through that list of Romans 12, verses uh, 9 through 21, and take a look at that and say, okay, these are some things that I need to intentionally be doing. And the third thing I would say is a little bit uh, nuanced, But I think part of what it's saying as far as like loving our neighbors is we need to expand our moral circle. This is an idea that was brought up by uh, Richard Beck in his book, Unclean. Uh, We all have, the idea is we all have this moral circle, and the people in this circle are the people that we give our most love, our most uh, generosity. And oftentimes this is like our immediate family, maybe some close friends, but after a while, it kind of... As it goes outward, it's got a limit to the people that we show that kind of love to. Tim Cooper, who at the time was working at North Point uh, Church in 2016, did this wonderful video uh, based on this where he talks about this waiter analogy. And some of you might remember the video, but he says, imagine you're out to dinner and the waiter comes and you, you, know, you order your drinks and you order your appetizer or, or your, uh, your main dish and everything's wrong. They're late, they're slow. They give you the wrong drink. They give you the wrong dinner. Get the meals mixed up. Uh, Or maybe the food's kind of cold when it comes out. And you're doing that mental math in your head where you're sort of deducting the amount of the tip, right? (laughs) Right? I know you've done that. Uh, And he says, now what if everything were the same, but that waiter was your brother? Well, how would you treat them then? You wouldn't get mad. You'd just be like, oh, oh, yeah, no problem. No problem. Yeah. Iced tea's fine. I, I don't... Yeah, that's okay. I don't even like water. I don't, yeah, well, I'll take the iced tea. That's great. Oh, salmon? And, and, and no problem. I mean, I'm allergic, but yeah, I, I ordered the hamburger. But still, you know, I, yeah, it's fine. Everything's good. And then what do you do at the end? You overtip them because you love them. And he said, what would happen if we expanded our moral circle out? Really, I think the way that Jesus calls us to. and say, no, no, no. You don't just love the people in your own little circle. You need to expand that circle like I have to the entire world. What would it look like if we showed love beyond our own circle? I think that's what this is getting at. I think when we start to do that, again, when we see the world in this way, when we frame it this way, I think it helps us to love the way Jesus called us to. Yes, even in this culture, the beauty of the Christian faith should stand in greater brilliance against the backdrop of a sin-broken world. They'll know we are Christians by our love, yes, even in the age of outrage.